If I said to you that I was a gearhead, would you know what that means? All the dudes are going, yeah, um, For those of you who don't know what that means, it just means I like to work on cars. I really do. Somebody asked me before, how, that's crazy. It's therapeutic for some reason to me, you know, just get my hands busy with that. In fact, I've got a, an engine sitting on an engine stand at home in my garage from a 1967 pickup truck that part of my vacation will be tearing that apart, and I'm looking forward to that. Um, now, I, I don't want to lose you on this illustration, but follow me, okay? We're not going to talk about camshafts and pistons. We're going to get more specific. Um, everyone in here, specifically if you drive, you understand at least a little bit about what a motor does, right? All right, so even if you don't much, it goes kind of like this. Get in the car. Oh, first of all, you put gas in the car. You get in the car. You turn the key. It starts. That thing in the front of the car starts making noise, and you put it in D, and you move, right? Everyone tracking? If you're lost at this point, please turn in your license at the info desk. All right. But here's the biggest thing we all know. No gas, no start, no move. Everyone tracking? Okay. Without fuel... A car is just a really heavy and expensive piece of yard art, right? Who in their right mind would own an automobile and never put fuel in it? Nobody would. It's ridiculous, right? About as ridiculous as being religious or going to church, reading your Bible without knowing Jesus. It's silly, right? The scriptures declare that there's only one thing in this world that matters. So if you're new here, listen up. This is really, really important. It's transformational. In fact, it's eternal, so I'd love for you to hear it. Here's the one thing that matters. To be fully known and loved by the creator of the universe. To have your sins covered and forgiven by Jesus. And to live by the power he supplies. Period. That's what matters. It's the most important thing I could say to you, and I can see some of you shaking your heads, so I hope you believe that, because from almost the very beginning of time, man has attempted to live for a lot of other reasons, and some of the reasons, or maybe a way to describe the reasons is for just, this is how it looks in our world, and that is live by some standard, some standard you decide, some, some standard that you, you accept, that makes you feel better about yourself or your position in life, excluding God. All right? So it might be like uh, you live a life of self-focus. It's, it's, it's all about me. You ever be, met one of these people? Like they live in a world of mirrors? It's all about me. Or self-worship? It's all for me. We're going this direction. Or it's a life that's lived by approval and performance. It's a life of lists. Here's the do's and here's the don'ts. And they fit my standard. And as soon as I can go through that list, I can sleep tonight because it matches up. Religion, in essence, is living a life, whatever life you choose to define it, without knowing Jesus. That's what religion is. I heard someone say it this way, and it made me laugh, so we're going to hear it. Um, it's like decaffeinated coffee. What's the point? <laughs> Am I right? I, I've told you before, um, I drink it, and I hate every minute of it. 
I had two cups of coffee this morning at 4 a.m. Because I believe the rumor that if you drink this stuff, it'll give you power. <laughs> like it'll perk you up. And every time I drink it, I get down to that last little bit and I, it's like medicine. I have to suck it down and, and pray that, God, you're going to use this for my good and your glory. <laughs> it's a great illustration for some people in the church. You look like it. You act like it. You give like it. You serve like it. You know like it. The only problem is there's no power because there's no Jesus. That's the tension. You know about him. You may even know this book fairly well. But you don't know him. And if you think I'm exaggerating, I'm not. I, I even heard today, um, not today, this week, about a man probably in his 60s, no kidding, that I know, have known for years. Who knows, man? He knows. And he's been around. And... Uh, but he won't repent. Like, I, I understand we're all sinners. I know we all fall. I know we all do stupid things. But the grace of God compels me to, to run from it. Somewhere, the brain is going to come in and you're going to go, I really didn't want that. I know I acted like it. I don't want it. I leave it and I'm coming towards you. And I'm not, I'm not the one who decides who's in and who's out. I don't even, I don't even mess with that. But, but I know one of the ways in which God confirms it in a human heart, and that is by the brokenness that he has over his sin. And if there's no brokenness, how can there be any hope? So I, I'm just going to make some assumptions, and I don't want you to be offended, but in a room of 1,000, 1,100 people or whatever, somebody in here has everyone convinced, but you don't know Jesus. You are decaffeinated. Does that make sense? I want to tell you some stories today from our text. Three particular stories of three different groups of people with three different perspectives on Jesus with only one real conclusion, which you probably can almost perceive where I'm going with this. But whatever sincere effort you want to make to whatever version of religion you live under, whatever hardcore disciplined life that you live, that if it's not Jesus, it's absolutely nothing. And I, I don't want to be offensive to you. I want to invite you to the most transformational story mankind has ever heard. No exaggerations. Jesus plus nothing. So let me set the stage to these stories. In chapter 18, verses 18 through 23, Paul has just finished a year and a half of mission in Corinth. Um, he has preached and preached and preached. God has put his protective hand over this man as he's done that. And he's on his way now. He's leaving Corinth on his way to Jerusalem, going back home. And he stops in Ephesus along the way. And because Paul is Paul, he can't help himself. He just starts to preach the good news. And people are so enthused by Paul, they ask him to stay. And he says, I can't, I can't stay. I've got, I've got to go, but I'll come back. I promise you, I'll come back. And he does. We'll find that out in his third trip around the world. Um, but, but he leaves Aquila and Priscilla, these friends that he has joined up with in our previous chapter, with them in Ephesus because God clearly isn't done in this place. And so here is the first story. And the first story is about a man. I don't know if you've heard of him before. His name is Apollos, Okay. Let's read the text. We're going to read verses 24 through the kind of first phrase of, of 26. And it goes like this. 
Now, a, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. This is really important. You get this next part. Though he knew only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Let's stop right there. Here's the point I want to make to you. That what you need and what I need is more than what Apollos had. Uh, he, he's an impressive man. If we just stop where we read, I mean, he would meet, meet any qualification for application into pastorhood I've ever heard of. In fact, just to, to tease it up a little bit more, I mean, I know we read over it quickly, native of Alexandria has some weight behind it. it, it Alexandria was located near the Nile of, of, of River Nile, near the mouth of that river in Egypt. It was a high learning center. It was like the Ivy League of the Middle East. It was, it was where, Ale, where Apollos got kind of trained and raised under the brightest minds. One, one writer said of that, of that place that it had one of the largest libraries in the world filled with Greek and, and, and Latin in Hebrew literature that talked about math and talked about philosophy and, and talked about language and medicine and blah, blah, blah. And that's where he grew up. So let's just paraphrase this all. Apollos is a smart guy. He came from Harvard, let's say. He's not average. He's smart. The second thing the text tells us about Apollos was that he was an eloquent man. It simply means that not only was he smart, he could communicate what he knew. And when he communicated, it really mattered to people. Oh, wow, what he's saying, I've got to listen to. This is really important. Text says that he was competent in the scriptures. You might have a version, NAS, the New American Standard says mighty in the scriptures. The word mighty, competent, is the word dunamis, which is where we get the English word dynamite. So let's just kind of dream that picture out loud. He is powerful with the scriptures. Dynamite is the word Luke said about Apollos. That's how he comes across when he's speaking, all right? Powerful in the scriptures. Old Testament scriptures, clearly what they only had. He would open up the text like nobody you've ever heard. If he was alive today, he'd be the most downloaded guy you've ever heard of. Apollos, he is so smart and so winsome. It says in the text, he was instructed in the ways of the Lord. That's just an Old Testament term for things of God, obviously referring to the prophecies of the Messiah and on and on. But he was, he was clear with that. It goes on to say he was fervent in the spirit. That phrase fervent means boiling over. We would say passionate. So when he communicated all the great, amazing things that he knew in the winsome ways that he did it with the information that he had, he would boil over in front of people. And people love to see a fire, don't they? They love to see passionate people, somebody who cares about something more than they care about anything. And that was Apollos on, on fire. The text says he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. And that sounds like, oh, well, then he's one of us. He's in. But look at the second phrase. You got to get the second phrase. Otherwise, you miss the whole interpretation. Though he only knew the baptism of John. In other words, Apollos was accurate about Jesus to a point. Because he only knew the baptism of John. Here's John's idea. Here's what he communicated. The Messiah is coming. So everybody repent. 
God's doing a work. He's going to do a work. Not certain we know all the details, but just get ready, all right? That's the message. And clearly Jesus is somehow a part of even his, his message or his understanding. But here's what he didn't have. He didn't have an understanding of new life. He didn't get the resurrection, and he didn't get this regeneration. Baptism under repentance, yes. Baptism unto new life, not so clear. That's what he had. Now, let me stop and rewind that list, because I can't get there. He's smart. He's great with words. He's powerful with the word. He had a deep understanding of the ways of God. He was passionate, winsome, and fearless. Wow. Where do we hire this guy? right? If he were here today, we would call him a super pastor. His books would line our shelves because he's so, he's so doggone good. Apollos had everything, everything you'd look for. He said, I don't believe he had Jesus. Not yet. That's what he had. Now look what he needed. Look at how two very, uh, in my opinion, very humble, obscure, somewhat people Deal with it. Again, back to verse 26. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he had powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. Thank God for people like Priscilla and Aquila people who, who don't want to run up and say, hey, let me tell you, Apollos, where you've blown this whole thing. Here's their message. Come with us. Many writers would suggest that they took him to their home and fed him. And this is how it went down. Apollos, it's all awesome. But let me tell you the rest of the story. Messiah, his name's Jesus. And he's risen from the grave and he lives in our hearts, and he transforms our minds, and he transforms our life. He changes everything. Apollos, you gotta hear this. It's not just leave stuff. It's go to Jesus, because he'll change everything in your life. And suddenly, this man who was so smart, so winsome, so good, so influential, suddenly gets transformed because of Jesus. It's interesting to me that word used here that uh, Priscilla and Aquila brought him aside and showed him a more accurate way. Uh, The word is actually exact or precise, which the point that rang in my ears when I saw that was you can't just be close on Jesus. You gotta be right on. You can't just be okay with him being for you. Or being a nice prophet who has an interest in your life or that if you just adjust your life with a little bit of him that somehow things will just get better. No, you've got to come broken knowing that he's the God of the universe who will deal rightly with sin. And when he does, we got no hope unless he also provides the covering. And he himself went to the cross and gives that covering. Precise on Jesus because if you miss, if you fudge the terms, you don't get any of it. And as smart and as great and as wonderful as Apollos was until somebody said, hey man, let me tell you the rest of the story. Apollos was just a smart, influential, passionate unbeliever. 
Now, I love the fact that you have just two average, ordinary, everyday tent makers who did this. In fact, other than this short little narrative we're currently in, in Acts, they don't even show up anywhere else. They're just making a difference. I, I love that story. And they made a huge eternal impact. There are many writers, again, who suggest that Apollos is, is the author behind the book of Hebrews. Like, he is a serious man. In fact, when Paul in 1 Corinthians is dealing with divisions in the church, when people are saying, and he says this in the text, some, of, some are saying, I'm a Paul, some are saying, I'm of Apollos. And it was Paul who said, it doesn't matter, we're both servants. I'll plant, he'll water. Somehow, Apollos in the church was pretty special. And if it's true, I don't know if it's true, he wrote Hebrews, well, it would ring true with what he discovered about Jesus. He's everything. He's absolutely everything. And I love that God used these people. Apollos is a great picture of, of people filling churches. Bible people. Passionate people, talented people, effective people, people others want to listen to. But they're people without power because they don't have Jesus. I gotta believe the Holy Spirit saying that to somebody. Got everything, but you don't have him. All that stuff is great, by the way. I have no problem with Apollos being who he is. But if it's not Jesus, it's nothing. Because what you are, church, is not what you need. I mean, you can be good and winsome and smart and effective. It's not what you need. What you need is Christ alone. You need to find your rest in him alone and nothing else. This is, this is Jesus' words. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son the exclusive narrow way unto life and salvation is Jesus plus nothing that's the gospel that's the first story here's the second story it has to do with 12 disciples of John the Baptist let's look at the text 1 through 3 of chapter 19 and it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. It's going to sound familiar to us, but here's the point, I think, of this encounter. What you need is more than these disciples had for certain. Let me characterize these men just a little bit. If they were truly disciples of John the Baptist, then they had spent the last 28 years since John was beheaded living the same life and speaking the same message as John the Baptist. Isn't that what you would assume about a disciple following his master? And the message of John was repent. Turn, stop, prepare for a coming king. Let me just make this statement. Living a life of repentance without Jesus will crush you. And a lot of people try. 
If you just simply make it your mission to just rearrange your own life and stop certain behaviors or muster the courage or the strength or whatever, the mental fortitude to try to remold your heart so it doesn't want the wrong things. And I'm telling you, you're under the weight. You can't handle it. It'll crush your soul, constantly looking for things to stop or to start doing, constantly wondering if what you're doing is enough, if you should add more or make your list longer. In other words, discipline and commitment is how you live. It's because you have to live that way. Everything's at stake. Because to you, You've created a way to God that doesn't include Jesus. Now, does that sound familiar to anybody in this room? If it does, then that's another, another thought for religion. Except in this case, unlike Apollo's story, it's not impressing God with your super performance. It's compelling his attention by your discipline. That's what these guys live for. This group of people have been around the church for a long time, known more for what they're against than what Jesus is for. That, play, that group fills churches. Now, that's what they had. Look what they needed, verses four through seven. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, period. That's the message of John. Repent and believe in the one who's coming. And then he puts this in there. It's Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began to speak in tongues and prophesying. And there was about 12 men in all. Okay, this is a little quiz time, interactive time. What did these men need, church? You did so much better than 8 o'clock. And remember, I told you the answer to most of the questions is always, okay. They needed Jesus. They needed the forgiveness of God. They needed to hear, maybe for the first time, what it really meant to have your sins so far removed from you, as far as the east is from the west. Maybe they needed to hear that I will remember your sins no more. Maybe they needed to hear that Jesus, when he sets you free, you truly will be free indeed. All of that work, all of that ladder work that you've been working on to try to get yourself to appease God, Lay it down. Lay it down. It doesn't work. It could never work. You can't fix your problems. You need a supernatural holy God who will lay himself in the way for you. That's what we need. It's Jesus. If it's not Jesus, it's nothing. One, one last story. I love this story. It's weird. I, if I was a movie director, I'd make a movie out of this story. I don't know how I'd end it, but maybe, maybe it just doesn't matter. The last story is of the sons of Sceva and, and the people of Ephesus, okay? Let's read the text here, 11 through 16. Tell me if you don't think this is weird. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons, now these would be things that he would use while he was tent making, things that he would wipe the sweat of, of his brow off and the aprons that he wore when he was constructing uh, tents, that had touched his skin, were carried away to the sick. Their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name Jesus, whom Paul proclaims, seven sons of Jewish high priests named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them. Now, this is the great line. I'm going to paraphrase it because it's a great line. You know, 
Jesus, I know, and I've heard of Paul, but who in the heck are you? <laughs> kind of that's how that reads to me. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so they fled out of the, fled out of the house naked and wounded. <laughs> what a great story. Um, what did the Jewish exorcists want by their actions? Can we just speculate a little here? I don't think we're far off. Possibly notoriety, possibly profit, that they were doing these miracles for gain. People would pay for these exorcisms. If I had a child that was with a demon, I would pay. What do you think the people who brought the loved ones, I'm not judging them because I probably would feel the same way, but a demon-possessed person wouldn't put himself in the pathway of an exorcist, so these people are taking their loved ones and go, can you do something? Why are they there? For the miracle, right? Can, can you see where I'm going with this? Many people want to use Jesus for what he provides and reject him for who he is. God, would you just do something? I'm okay with believing in a God as long as he does things for me and makes things better and makes me profitable and keeps me healthy. I'm okay with some kind of God in my life, but I don't ever want to serve Jesus. I don't ever want to bow my knee. That's what's going on here. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? To me, as soon as I re read that, I thought prodigal son... You know the story of this boy who has a dad and he goes to his dad and says, give me my inheritance now, which was the equivalent of saying, I, I don't even care if you're alive or dead. That's when you get your inheritance, when your father is no more. So it's essence, he's saying, die and give me your money. I want what you have, I don't want you. And he goes off to the big city and he squanders the whole thing, right? Well, it's the same thing for people who come to Jesus, who treat him like a lucky rabbit's foot. God, would you, would you just do would you just perform, make me the sole focus of all your attention and make me happy all the time? So, so let me ask you a question. Please ask your heart. What do you want Jesus for? What's your angle? What do you think? Here's what we need. Here's what these guys needed. They needed Jesus plus nothing. Because if it's not Jesus, it is nothing. We need to come to our senses and realize that he is the prize and not the giver of prizes. The destination of all of this is that we get him. Not just use him to somehow placate our desires. God, just make me happy here. He is the attention of the human heart. He is the prize of salvation. He is what you long for. He is the satisfaction and the peace and the joy and the longing he is. Why do you come to him? What do you want from him? If all you had was him, is it enough for you? We need something so much less fleeting than our personal happiness. We need this relationship. God, look at me. And don't reject me. And cover me with Jesus so I can have you. That's the gospel. 
That's the good news. Now watch what happens to this story, verses 17 through 20. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, so that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The same message that changed Apollos, the same message that affected the 12 disciples of John, now affects a city. Ephesus, and the response is amazing, but not any different than the response of every sinner who comes by faith to Jesus. It's the same response. Look at what happens here. Look what it says in verse 17. They saw this story, and here's the thing. Don't mess with Jesus. Don't just use him. Don't just throw his name out there because he's serious, about himself and what happened to the people? Great fear. Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord's where this whole thing starts. Do you ever sit alone at night and do you ever have this thought? He should crush me. I deserve it. I've tried so hard to forget thousands of things that I deserve to be crushed for. He forgets nothing. Do you ever sit there and go, God, I know I deserve it, but you're my dad. The fear of the Lord isn't something that drives you away. It pushes you into him. And what happens here is an amazing response. It happens to all those who come to Christ by faith. The name of Jesus was extolled. Magnified is the word. Praised is the word. Worshipped. Jesus is made much of in this place where just a few days ago they were trying to use him. And now they want to praise him. Something's happened to these people. And they confess their sins. Verse 18. Confessing and divulging their practices. Isn't that interesting? Confession. God, this is what I am. Who I am is what I struggle with. These are my tendencies. This is where I'll go when I live my own life. God, you know me. I'm just going to say it. Here's what I am. These people did that. Lord, here's we are. Verse 19, they repented. The story just goes that a number of them had practiced magic arts, and they brought their books together, and they just burnt, had a book burning. All this evil stuff, all these other ways, all these other satisfactions, all these other helps, they recognized as against their God, so they put them together and they burnt them. Repentance means an about face, going the other way. The biggest proof of truly going the other way in your life is when it costs you a lot to do it. These people took whatever collection of information they had, and they burned it. And it says here, 50,000 pieces of silver, the equivalent of $5 million. They laid on a fire and said, you know, it's a waste. It's a total waste. It isn't true. It's in the way. I want you. I want to leave you with a couple questions. How would you honestly define your relationship with Jesus? How, how would you? Would you honestly look in his mirror and say, 
it's not about religion, some other man-made version of how to make yourself okay? Is your life filled with um, self-focus or self-worship? Is it made of lists of do's and don'ts that somehow make God obligated to you? Maybe you're here this morning and you go, man, I'm certain I believe. I know I'm, I believe. But here's the tendency of the human heart. It's to wander. And what happens to a perpetually wandering heart is hardness. Right? Have you not been there? If you haven't, I have. And let me just tell you, there's only one solution. Repent. And I love, I love the illustration used here in this story because it made me ask a question. If God, if you're going to convict me, what would I burn? What would I get rid of? What would need to go? What version of going to the extreme would I go? Not, Not to gain your affections because it makes me so angry that I ever thought I could replace you in the first place. Can we pray together? God, I thank you for these stories and for Jesus, our Savior. I thank you for the reminder of your amazing fatherly affections and pursuit of sinners. I thank you that, God, there is nothing, nothing um, on this earth that can bring condemnation against our hearts because Jesus has covered them. There is no separation We are fully saved in Jesus plus nothing. So I just pray for us, this church, that we wouldn't leave here and just write it off. Oh, yes, yes, I belong. I I pray, God, you would have us ask the question. Ask the question, is it Jesus plus nothing or is it some other version? And God, if there's an answer like yes to that, I pray, God, that they would repent and come home to you, the Father. We pray in Christ's name, amen.